One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about the trial of fugitive slave Anthony Burns. And I'll be talking about the power of suggestion, part two. We can get a good slavery trial in here. That's sure to be lighthearted fair. It's fascinating. Okay. So shut your mouth. (laughs) I did have a question, though. Okay. It's my turn to go first. Yeah. But I feel like this two-parter thing... Is it better for you to go first? No, I don't think it matters on because the I, edge went, of their seats. I went first at the... They've already had to listen to your shitty case. <gasps> <since my mom. laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, I loved your case. Oh, really? What was your favorite part about it? Uh, Chichester. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you were going to be like me and like once we finish recording, you just I block forget, it out of your brain I completely. Everything. Yes. No, I remembered all of it. Wow, okay. I could recite it word for word. Well, congratulations. <laughs> no, someone on our Reddit thread, yeah, the unofficial Reddit thread. Let's go to the number two court podcast. Was like, don't you think it would have been nice if they like, yeah, would have <laughs> put these two segments together? Yeah, that would have been fucking smart. I'm sorry that we're not that smart. <laughs> But yes, it would have been smart for me to go last last week and first this week. I apologize that we were not that forward thinking. So did thinking. you read that too? Yeah, somebody said it on our uh, Instagram as well. Oh, okay. So, yeah. yeah, I saw that and I was like, huh, yeah, that would have been, that been a pretty good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, that ship has sailed and Sorry, I don't think folks. it matters at this point. So let's stick to our routine. Okay. Stick to the routine. A creature of habit, Kristen. Okay. Fugitive slave Anthony Burns. Mm. You're making a face. I'm like this is going to be the saddest thing ever. Downer. It's a really good story. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. First of all, shout out to famoustrials.com. Mm-hmm. Famous Trials has a huge write up on this case. I will say, though, I'm kind of on. I already wrote my script for next week. And I'm on an old-timey kick here. And when you do the old-timey, we're talking like 1800s, 1700s, every site has different details. So I just tried to go with what was most consistent. I mean, sometimes they were just blatant. I mean, sometimes you just really couldn't figure it out. So I just kind of went with whatever source I trusted the most or whatever seemed to make the most sense. Got it. Also, last week I talked about Adam and Connor sending us the list of Boston cases, which I'm keeping from you because I love them. Correct. And they talked about wanting a Boston series. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, well, you know, we'll see. You know, I'll do a few cases. Um, The Boston series is happening. Oh, great. So last week I did a Boston one. This is a Boston one. Just like pure accident. Didn't need to. And next week is a Boston one. And who knows? Maybe I'm just on a Boston kick. Great. So. Reliving the glory days, huh? If you can call them that. <laughs> Just a lot of Mike's Hard Lemonade. <laughs> and doing very well in school. Okay, you ready? Yes. Yeah, let's touch that mic a whole bunch. Yeah, sorry. I, you got the limp noodle mic? It's just like I had it up by my eyeballs. I don't know why I had it up that high. Sorry, we... so. You know this. I don't have yes. to tell you this, but we we're, just ate. I know our routine is backwards today. Yes. So, like, 
we just ate wings and we had stromboli. So like my throat is just like, <sighs> yeah, it's a mess. So here we go. Anthony Burns was born in 1834 in Stafford County, Virginia. He was born a slave. Even though it was illegal, he learned to read and write. He became a preacher. He was a gifted speaker and an intelligent person. As he got older, he knew there was one thing he wanted more than anything. His freedom. So when he was around 20 years old, some say 19, some say 20, I say who cares. Yeah. He escaped slavery. He got on board a ship headed for Boston. A while later, they docked in Boston and Anthony was free. Almost immediately, he picked up jobs here and there. And eventually, he started working at Coffin Pits. Ooh. Coffin, like a coffin. A coffin. Uh-huh. Pits, like my last name. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what do you think uh, that store is? Oh, it's a store. Yes. Oh, I was thinking it was like a advertising firm. <laughs> Grave digger. <laughs> no, it's a clothing store. Oh, yeah. Hey, where did you get those shoes? Oh, oh coffin, coffin pits. pits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know they're kind of they're kind of pricey, but I just love them. <laughs> so, get that computer ready. Oh, this clothing oh. store, Coffin Pits, was located at 36 Brattle Street in Boston, Massachusetts. B R A T T L E. Well, I spelled it differently. <laughs> <laughs> did you spell it with a bunch of Ds? I did. <laughs> I didn't put in the city, and then Rhode Island came up. (gasps) So stressed right now. You know, it's a good thing I always cut out. People must think we're the fastest Googlers in the West because, like, I always cut out a good thirty seconds of us being like, click, click. It's now a a bank. Yeah, it looks like a city bank. So it's like, I mean, it's basically in like Harvard Town. Yeah. So for about a year, Anthony was a free man in Boston. But he didn't want to entirely cut ties with his family. So he sent a letter to his brother. In the letter, he said, Hey, I'm doing okay. I'm living in Boston. I'm working at Coffin Pits at 36 Brattle Street. (laughs) Don't worry, it's not as bad as it sounds. (laughs) He tried to send this letter in a smart way. Uh So he didn't just, like, send it... From Boston to Virginia. He sent it to Canada first, and then from Canada it went to Virginia. So on the outside, it looked like this letter was coming from Canada. Uh Okay, this next part is a little tricky. One source says that Anthony and his brother had been owned by the same guy, who will from now on be known as Colonel Charles F. Suttle, douche lord III. Yeah. So when the that just makes my stomach cringe when you say they were owned by the same guy. Yeah. Ugh. I had a I had a really rough time with like you you know reading through all this stuff and so and so was a slave, so and so was their master, and like I know those are just the terms. Yeah. And you know you can't get around that. Well, actually, the way I'm getting around it is I'm not calling anyone master. I'm calling this guy Douche Lord the Third. That's like, great. So, I love it. You know, that, that'll right some wrongs. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a lot of healing all thanks to this. So when the letter arrived, Charles F. Suttle, Douche Lord the Third, opened it immediately and read it. 
Another source said, and I, I think I believe this other source, it just makes more sense to me, that Anthony's brother wasn't owned by the same guy as Anthony, and that Anthony's brother actually lived in Richmond, Virginia. So whichever douche lord owned Anthony's brother spotted that letter, read it, and was like, oh my, a black man has his freedom, mm-hmm. and then mailed it to Alexandria to give a heads up to Charles F. Subtle Douche Lord III. Uh-huh. To me, that just makes more sense. Yeah. Because I feel like Anthony would have been... I don't feel like Anthony would have sent it back to the place where the douche lord lived. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Even if it did come from Canada. Right. Either way, the douche lord gets a hold of this letter and he's pissed. He's like, that man is my property and I will get him back. And I can do that thanks to a horrible little thing called the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm -hmm. So pause to talk about that. There's a super early law on the books called the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. And that's not the one I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which passed three years before Anthony arrived in Boston. Mm -hmm. So this law required that any enslaved person who escaped to a free state had to be returned to the douche lord who owned them. Mm. And, and this is, okay, so this is the part that pissed people off big time. All the public officials in the free state and just the regular everyday citizens of the free state had to cooperate with this law. Mm -hmm. If a public official didn't help capture a suspected runaway slave, they could be fined a thousand dollars. Wow. Adjusted for inflation. Yes. Give it to me. Thirty-two thousand wow. dollars. Can you imagine? Shit. Yes. Wow. Plus any citizen who provided food or shelter or I'm sorry, any citizen who provided food or shelter to someone who had escaped slavery could get a fine, that thousand dollar fine, and they could face like six months in jail. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This law pissed off the free states like crazy. Yeah. It was part of the something compromise. Shit. The the compromise of 1850? This, this is not my fucking case, Kristen. <laughs> Why am I supposed to know? <laughs> I'm just thinking there are going to be so many people who are angry that I don't remember. Anyway, it was supposed to be a compromise. But... It just pissed off the free states like crazy because obviously, yeah. Speaking of things that people are pissed about that what? we don't know. Oh, no. Oh, no. Remember in the Rockefeller case, he somebody was having a date with a Mountbatten and we were talking yeah, about Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lord Mountbatten. Yeah. So that's uh, Prince Philip's last name. That's that family <gasps> name. Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, I feel so yeah. dumb. I mean, let's just oh. show the world that we're Midwest trash. We have no idea. You know what? I, I, I actually knew. <laughs> I did just not. didn't want to make you feel bad. No, my that dad, sucks. Yeah, my dad told me that yesterday. He was like, <laughs> Uh, you know that's Prince Philip's family name, and I was like, no, and "You were like, I shut not. up." <laughs> I did not. Well, that's good to know because honestly, Mountbatten sounds made up to me. Yeah. Uh, clearly, it's not. <laughs> okay, so, sorry. What, did you decide what compromise it is? Okay, um, I'm going to call it the Compromise of 1850. I'm going to Google it right now. Oh. Oh, oh boy, I'm so smart. You ready for this? You ready? I you ready to hear this? Did I tell you you were wrong? <laughs> <laughs> the 
the Fugitive Slave Act, was passed by the United States Congress on September 18th, 1850, as part of the Compromise of 1850. Excellent. Kristen Pitts is a genius. (laughs) I can't believe it says it right there. So, this law that I remembered and described perfectly. On your own case. (laughs) Pissed off. I mean, it's not like you came up with some law that I mentioned on my case (laughs) and you like whipped it out of nowhere. You just researched this. You should fucking know it. Brandy, let me be proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I'm so sorry. Uh I'm not going to dull your shine. Thank you. (laughs) This law pissed off the free states like crazy. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) obviously (laughs) (laughs) you had people who were adamantly against slavery Mm -hmm. but you also had people who probably didn't think about slavery a a whole lot probably didn't care a whole lot but then all of a sudden they're supposed to enforce slavery yeah that's crazy so they're like "Mm, no we didn't sign up for this (laughs) sorry what is happening I feel like I've got a hair stuck to that terrible Carmex I was putting on earlier. Do you need a wax? <laughs> How dare you. <laughs> um, I waxed it last week. Thank you. <laughs> got most of it up pretty good. <laughs> so the law was the law. So when Charles F. Suttle, douche lord III, wanted Anthony Burns back, he was like, this should be easy. He went to Virginia State Court, submitted all the required paperwork, and the court was like, yeah, you've proven that you own this guy. You've proven that he escaped, and thanks to the Fugitive Slave Act, you can totally get him back. So the douche lord was like, thank you, judicial system, love you, goodbye. He goes to Boston, and he takes his buddy, William Brent, who was also super pissed that Anthony Burns was a free man. So this is something that I just, like, looked into very briefly. But I believe that this Charles Suttle guy, like, his family had been pretty wealthy from, Mm -hmm. like, generations, a few generations back. But then, like, his dad died. His mom kind of mismanaged the money. So he was trying to build back up the wealth. And one of the, the ways he was doing that was trying to, like, basically rent out slaves yeah great so william brandt had like agreed to pay for two years worth of work for anthony burns mm-hmm. and so when anthony burns escaped william brandt was pissed and charles Suttle was pissed. right so charles f Suttle, douche lord the third and his buddy william go to judge edward loring in boston they're like here's our paperwork we're here for our property and edward looked it over and said okay you're right. He issued a warrant for Anthony's arrest. That night, when Anthony got out of work, six men surrounded him and carried him to the Boston courthouse. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, unnecessary. Yeah. They locked him up in a jury room, and they said, you're getting a rendition hearing tomorrow morning, and you're heading back to Virginia. Goodbye forever. There was just one problem. What? This was fucking Boston. They weren't in Virginia. Uh Uh-huh. So Boston was home to this little group called the Boston Vigilance Committee. This was a racially diverse group of total badasses. They fought to protect escaped slaves and lead escaped slaves to freedom. 
The Boston Vigilance Committee was fired up about the stupid Fugitive Slave Act. They hated it. So when they found out about what happened to Anthony Burns, they were like, oh, hell no. The next morning when it was time for Anthony's rendition hearing, members of the Boston Vigilance Committee showed up. Two lawyers said, hey, we will represent you pro bono. Wow. One was Richard Henry Dana. Richard was this Harvard-educated white guy who, as a boy, went to a private school that was run by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Dude was super educated yeah. and not a fan of slavery at all. Right. The other lawyer was Robert Morris. Robert Morris was one of the first black attorneys in the United States and the first black attorney to win a, a lawsuit in the United States. Oh, wow. Yes. Civil rights issues were his thing. He made a name for himself by fighting for school integration and fighting the Fugitive Slave Act. This guy was a total badass. So now Anthony had these two fantastic lawyers, and right away the lawyers got the hearing postponed. In the meantime, Anthony was still locked up in the courthouse, and the Boston Vigilance Committee was torn about what to do. Some of them were like, let's do this the nonviolent way. Let's see if we can get him out of slavery by fighting this in the courtroom. Another group of them said, this is a money issue. If we just go to Charles F. Suttle, douche lord III, and pay him off, he'll go away. We can buy Anthony's yeah. freedom. Yeah. But others were like, yeah, um, great ideas all around. No bad ideas in brainstorming. <laughs> but... Charles is a douche lord, and we kind of hate to give him money. And as for the legal route, we could do that, except the law is super clear. Yeah. We're going to lose this mm -hmm. thing. So how about instead we storm the courthouse and bust him out? Oh, my gosh. It was so a that's big, what they did? Well, it was a big group. Lots of different opinions. Couldn't really agree on any one tactic. So, meanwhile, <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> meanwhile, word of Anthony's story spread. That night, thousands of people gathered in Faneuil Hall to protest on Anthony's behalf. Um, you can look up Faneuil Hall. F-A-N-E-U-I-L. Hall. How? How? <laughs> it's, an, like it's an insane it. way to spell it. Yeah. I'm not the one who made it up. It's um Oh yeah. A lot of important things have happened there. Yes. Um a very Looks important thing happened to me there. Important. What My happened to you there? Well, okay. It was during a college visit. I was 18. Uh, -huh. uh we had visited Simmons, which was where I would eventually go, and we were just kind of seeing the sights, one of them being Faneuil Hall. And I remember we crossed the street and we kind of like turned back to look behind us. And there was another group, like a family, crossing the street. Uh -huh. And in the middle of the crosswalk, <sighs> a bird shat. <laughs> on your face? No, on someone else's <gasps> face. On someone else's face. I saw this happen to this girl. She was about my age. Pooped right in the middle of her forehead. And so when I looked 
this up for this very important case, all I could think of was the look on that girl's <laughs> face when the poop splattered. Oh, no. Poor girl. It's You know what's funny is like at first she didn't even look mad. It was just so shocking. Uh, yeah. And then, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, I've and got things took a shit on my face. Yeah. There's only so long you can deny that. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of people gathered to protest on Anthony's behalf. People were fired up. One abolitionist told the crowd that if Anthony Burns leaves the city of Boston, Massachusetts is a conquered state. Wow. By about 9.30, the protest was winding down. The crowd shrank from thousands to hundreds. A few of the men had axes. Oh, okay. A few had a big beam of wood. Which yeah. was taken from a construction site. I often travel with a beam of wood. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, we're busting Anthony out of this yeah. courthouse. They rammed the courthouse's doors with the beam. Yeah. They rammed it and rammed it until finally yeah. they broke I'm open. I'm picturing it like a ramrod. I get it. Do you get it? I get Brandy, it. Brandy, <laughs> they all, like, everyone had part yeah, of the beam. Works. Yeah, they pushed it forward. Okay. I don't think Say you Take our ramrod. Huh? Nothing as a Super Troopers reference. A movie you've never seen, I'm sure. True, I've never seen <laughs> Super... Actually, it's the one with the cops, right? <laughs> They're actually Highway Patrol. They go through the drive-thru? Oh, do they? They sure do. <laughs> it was chaos. There were roughly 50 guards inside the courthouse. Things got violent. And one of the guards died. Okay, here's, here's the thing. It said he died from a wound to his groin. No! I know. And, like, it also, it didn't say an axe to his groin, but, I mean, dudes had axes, and I feel like... Oh, no! I know, I know. Oh. So, that's a way to go. No kidding. Soon, police descended on the scene... A bunch of abolitionists were arrested. I'm sure everyone was cupping their junk. <laughs> President Franklin Pierce weighed in. He was not a fan of the anti-slavery movement. So he was like, hey, could everyone just like chill? I think the most important thing here, perhaps more important than freedom and liberty, is that we respect this law. Oh, my gosh. By the way, according to Wikipedia... He was one of our worst and least memorable presidents. Yeah. Um, when you said his name, I was like, oh, yeah, that was a president. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I was like, Franklin Pierce, that's one. If, you know, if I'm reciting presidents, I'm never <laughs> going to name that him. One. No. <laughs> By this point, Boston is a mess. We've got one dead U.S. Marshal. We've got 13 people under arrest. We've got one shitty federal law. And we've got a guy who just wants to be free. Wow. And is headed for trial. Meanwhile, a group of abolitionists were still talking about buying Anthony's freedom. They talked to Charles F. Suttle. And the douchebag was like, no way. I'll sell him. But not to anyone who's going to set him free. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Two days go by. Now it's time for the rendition hearing. Right off the bat, the defense loses on the legal question. 
yes, a fugitive slave certificate issued in Virginia is valid. Yes, Congress has the power to insist that Massachusetts accept the certificate. Mm-hmm. So that sucked pretty bad. But then the defense took a different route. They were like, how do we know for certain that this man is the man you claim to own? I think we've got a case of mistaken identity here. Ooh. Mm. That is a good argument. You think so? Yeah. Yeah, in this day and age. Yeah. Because, yeah, how do they prove for sure yeah. who he is? Yeah, it's like, oh, did you have photos? Yeah. yeah. Like, DNA? No. That is a great argument. They were like, hey, the defendant doesn't even match the description on the certificate. So this, I think this is super interesting. The certificate says he has a scarred right hand. But look, the defendant's hand isn't scarred. It's super damaged. The certificate says he has a scar on his left cheek. But look, there's no scar there. It's a brand. So basically, mm-hmm. so my opinion, in this certificate, they tried to fancy up yeah. how this man had been treated. Yep. Oh, it's not that, you know, he got his hand mangled. Oh, it's not that we took an iron and branded yeah. his cheek. It's a, there's a scar. Yeah. So they're trying to use that to their uh-huh. advantage. Because this this was Anthony Burns, you know. Yes. <laughs> the prosecution was like, nah, dude, that's him. That's for <laughs> sure him. They called up William Brent, who was the douche lord's long-term friend. And William said, I've known Anthony Burns for years. And that guy right there, that's Anthony Anthony Burns. Burns. And by the way, when he was arrested, I asked him why he ran away. And he told me, I fell asleep on board the vessel where I worked, and before I woke up, she set sail and carried me off. Hmm. Which... I mean, say what you got to say. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Come on. <laughs> so that was pretty damning testimony. Yeah. But the defense kept fighting. Anthony escaped slavery on March 20th. So the defense called eight witnesses who all said they saw him in Boston before March 20th. Ooh. Then the prosecution called a guard up to take the stand. And the guard said, Yeah, I had a conversation with Anthony. He told me that he arrived in Boston in late March, which late March could still be March 19th, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. In closing arguments, the defense begged the judge to presume freedom. Mm -hmm. Richard said, may your judgment be for liberty and not for slavery, for happiness, not for wretchedness, and for hope. I've already messed it up. Hang on. (laughs) Back that ship up. (laughs) Back that ship up. (laughs) I fell asleep while I was on it. Now I'm in Boston. Let me back it up. He said, may your judgment be for liberty and not for slavery, for happiness and not for wretchedness, for hope and not despair. Mm. Beautiful. When said correctly. When it came time to rule, Judge Loring said that the Fugitive Slave Act was cruel and wicked, but ultimately the law was the law. Anthony was sitting there listening to all of this, and he silently mouthed the word no, just as the judge ordered that he be sent back to Virginia and back into slavery. No. The people of Boston were stunned. 
On the day he was set to leave Boston, people hung black banners from their windows. Someone rigged a coffin to hang from a building, and they wrote the words, Funeral for Liberty, on its side. 50,000 people lined the streets of Boston to protest Anthony's return to Virginia. Wow. A ton of people, soldiers for the Army, Marines, and U.S. Marshals all escorted Anthony Burns to Virginia. By the way, I didn't get into this in the script, but this was, like, super fucking expensive. Yeah. This whole thing was insanely expensive because they had to, like, call in all these extra troops. And, mm-hmm. like, people got mad about that because it's like, really? Yeah. For one guy who just wanted to be free? Free, yeah. Shut up. When Anthony arrived in Virginia, he immediately went to prison. They kept him in a tiny cell and gave him just enough food and water to keep from dying. Four months later... The douche lord sold Anthony Burns at auction. A plantation owner from Rocky Mount, North Carolina, named David McDaniel Douche Nozzle II, mm. bought him for $905. Mm. By the way, the Boston people, I think they'd offered to pay either $1,200 or $1,300. Oh so this was not a money thing. It was truly, yeah. yeah. But the people in Boston's abolitionist movement hadn't forgotten about Anthony. Mm-hmm. Two clergymen from the 12th Baptist Church, you ready for this? Located at 160 Warren Street, W-A-R-R-E-N. Thank you. I know how to spell fucking Warren. Oh, wow. Listen to you, Battle, um, or Brattle, or whatever that was. <laughs> I can't even remember. Roxbury, Massachusetts. Got it. I don't know if that's the mm. same building. Surely mm-hmm. that's not the same building. But anyway... It's this prominent African-American church that's been around forever. Two clergymen from that church were keeping track of Anthony. They found out who had purchased him, and they turned to the congregation, and they said, please help us. Mm -hmm. You know this man's story. What can we do? Yeah. So the congregation raised $1,300. Oh, my gosh. Which... I didn't adjust for inflation, but it's got to be like 30-something thousand. (laughs) (laughs) Then the clergyman reached out to David McDaniel Douchenozzle II, and they said, hey, that new slave you just bought. We'll take him. Can we buy him from you? And Daniel McDaniel, David McDaniel, sorry. (laughs) You know, when I add on, like, Douchenozzle, I mean, it's just messing me up. The guy said, sure. And they worked out a deal. Everything looked like it was going to be okay. But pretty quickly, word got out. To Douche Lord Third. What do you mean? Did Douche Lord Third find out about it and got pissed? Um, Original Douche Lord. He didn't have any... Oh, right, sorry. I was getting lost in the Douche Lord. <laughs> tell you were. Um, so he didn't have any say at this point. You okay. Know, he didn't, All right. Sold. Right. I don't um, want to interrupt anymore. Okay. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> so word gets out in North Carolina and people are pissed. Is that a pause for dramatic effect? Or? Uh, for sure. It wasn't just me losing my place. <laughs> if that's what you're asking. Word gets out in North Carolina. They're super mad because they find out, okay, David McDaniel is planning to give this guy his freedom, essentially. Yeah. We can't have that. Yeah. So they go, they point a gun at Douche Nozzle the second, uh-huh. and they start threatening him. But he says, basically... Sorry, y'all. Deal's a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Deal's a deal. 
So the angry mob just kind of dispersed, and the plan worked. That church in Boston, or excuse me, Roxbury, bought Anthony Burns' freedom, and he went on to do so much with it. He became a public speaker, and he told crowds about what slavery was really like. He talked about being captured. He wrote a biography, and then he used the money from his biography to go to college. Oh, my god! Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps. This is, yeah. so, this is so exciting. He attended Oberlin College in Ohio on yep. a scholarship, and after college, he preached in Indianapolis. He later moved to Canada to preach at the Zion Baptist Church, and I'm sorry, because Canada is a huge country, and I feel really stupid just being like, he moved there. He moved to, you didn't find um, out where in Canada? I couldn't find where. Great. I'm not going to pretend like I looked really hard for it, but I'm just <laughs> saying, like, I, I looked a little. <laughs> he died in 1862 of tuberculosis when he was just 28 years old. Oh, my gosh. I know. But I think about, like, what an impact he had. Yeah. In just 28 years. Like, yeah, what he no was able kidding. to do with his life is incredible. Incredible. Even though Anthony Burns died young, he had a huge impact on the judicial system. Immediately after his trial, people in Boston were super fired up. They formed an anti-manhunting league. They burned copies of the Fugitive Slave Act. And they also burned copies of Judge Loring's decision. Am I having a stroke right now? No, you're not. The the (laughs) chandelier in this dining room is like flickering like crazy. Anthony Burns is here with us. Host of Anthony Burns is here. And he's asking me why I'm doing such a bad job on his amazing story. (laughs) So they burned copies of Judge Loring's decisions against him. The Boston Vigilance Committee was so incensed by Judge Loring's decision that they lobbied to have him removed as a probate judge. Wow. And it worked. Wow. Okay. So the Massachusetts legislator, later, blah, blah, blah. The Massachusetts, no, (laughs) no. I'm the one having the stroke. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Uh, I think it's because we did things out of order. We did do things. I'm a creature of habit. We cannot be eating lunch before we record. We can't do open houses, lunch, then record. It has to be record- then lunch. Yeah. Whew. The Massachusetts legislature, oh, beautifully said, <laughs> removed him, saying Massachusetts required her judges to bring instincts to the bench favorable to liberty and justice and not against them. But the governor stepped in and said, uh, no blocked way. it? Mm-hmm. <gasps> you can't remove him. Damn it. The governor said, Judge Loring tried to apply the law neutrally. And that's what he did. The law is the law. He applied it. Wow. The next year, with a new governor, the Boston Vigilance Committee tried again. And this time their efforts were successful. So this guy was, I think, on the faculty at Harvard Law at the time. And after that decision, they refused to reappoint him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Not everyone was disgusted by Edward Loring's de- decision, though. <laughs> Jeez. I'm sorry. His decision. Just... <laughs> I'm the one who decided <laughs> to have lunch before the podcast. Oh, God. Oh, no. This is just... Good thing we're not recording this and letting other people, <laughs> letting people listen. listen to this. Oh, shit. 
Ooh. Get it together, Kristen. I'm trying, but I mean, like, gosh, I'm in the home stretch here. Totally fine. <laughs> I like it. I'm thinking about changing the way I pronounce it. <laughs> That's a decision you have to make on your own. We all have to decide for ourselves. <laughs> so not everyone was disgusted by Edward Loring's decision. Great. Uh-huh. Really? In fact, some people thought it was pretty cool. So no. The, yeah. So it's like you think this guy's going to get a little justice, but then in 1858, President James Buchanan appointed him to a federal judgeship. Awesome. Yeah. Sorry that happened to you. Have a promotion. Mm-hmm. Anthony Burns's trial did more than just change things in the short term. After the trial, Massachusetts passed laws that made it so that if an alleged slave wanted a jury trial, they could get one. It wasn't going to be just some like. Oops, send you back to wherever within five minutes. The laws placed the burden of proof on the douche lords who claimed to own a fugitive slave, not the other way around. Uh They said that people coming into Massachusetts claiming to own a fugitive slave had to bring at least two neutral witnesses to prove the case. Oh, wow. So probably not some guy who also has a financial stake. Exactly. And that's the story of how one man's fight for freedom was ultimately successful and fueled opposition to slavery. Wow. So I view it as kind of an uplifting it thing. Is. Even it the, actually you know, is. A it little, sounds it's like it's going to be more horrible. uplifting than I thought it was yeah. going to be. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. Whew. Wow. So on famous trials, like mm-hmm. the professor who runs that site yeah. was basically like, this is one of those interesting cases where. You know, we always kind of say, oh, judges are supposed to apply laws neutrally, just like go by the book. Mm-hmm. But but can you really? Right. And he talked about like, this was a big thing, you know, in the Third Reich. Like, judges applied these terrible laws yeah. neutrally. And should they have done that? Yeah. Well, fucking no. Like, you've right. got to, you got to have some morals. Yeah. I think it's interesting it is interesting so that's a boston case for Woo. you all right i'm excited for this boston series there's a there's a lot of town names that i'm in, excited to pronounce feeling good about it yeah yeah that one turned out a way way better than i thought it was going to oh i uh, yeah <laughs> you think you can do a better job than i did <laughs> we'll see you Goodness know it's gracious I, it just occurs to me now like the people who were just suffering through that so they could get to part two of yours, that had to be real rough. Painful. <laughs> it's really painful. I'll get through the girl who can't talk to get to part two of this exciting story. Okay. Okay, are you going to do like a recap? Because I, I need a recap. I am. All right. I, um, before I do my recap, I want to say a couple things. First of all, I did not give this shout out on last week's episode, and I feel badly about it. Um, it is, I just want to thank Joe... Dugan and Catherine Huddle, who are the authors of the eight-part series of articles in the Lincoln Journal Star, where I got the majority of the info for these episodes. Okay. So, quick recap of part one. On last week's episode Um, of Rocky and Bullwinkle. (laughs) Uh, Before I do the recap, let me just say that, in general, the feedback has been good. People have liked the two-part series. There's been only one or two people who have actually said, like, I don't think it's for me. I'm telling you. It's going to be worth it 
after the conclusion. Did people of part actually two. say it was? Yeah, one person, one or two people were like, nah, I like it when it all wraps up okay. in one episode. Yeah, right. Okay, quick recap of part one. Yes. February 6th, 1985. 68 year old widow Helen Wilson is found murdered in her apartment in Beatrice, Nebraska. She had been raped and suffocated. Her hands were bound and an afghan was tied around her face. Evidence of the crime scene was fairly limited, but did include blood and semen that told investigators they were looking for a type B non-secretor. Within 10 days of Helen's murder, investigators had zeroed in on a suspect. They had multiple witnesses who could put Bruce Smith in the area of Helen Wilson's apartment around the time of the murder. They also had witnesses who had seen him that day with what looked like blood on his clothes. Bruce had already skipped town, but when detectives followed him to Oklahoma and they learned that he'd been a suspect in a murder that looked an awful lot like Helen's, they were pretty sure they had their guy. Mm -hmm. But when they sent blood and saliva samples off to the Oklahoma City Police Lab, they were shocked to learn that he couldn't be their guy. Bruce Smith was a type B secretor. And that's when the hunt for Helen Wilson's killer went cold. That's also when Bert Searcy entered the picture. Bert was a former police investigator turned hog farmer who recognized Helen Wilson from the cleaners he used to take his police uniforms to. And he felt called to investigate her murder himself. Fast forward four years and Bert is back in uniform, this time as a sheriff's deputy, and he wouldn't stop talking about the Wilson murder case. Thanks to a confidential informant, he was sure he knew who was responsible for her death. He just needed to get the right person to listen to him. Neither the sheriff nor the police chief seemed to be taking him seriously, so he took his evidence directly to the county attorney, Richard Smith and was able to secure arrest warrants for Joseph White and Joanne Taylor. And on March 15, 1989, the two were taken into custody on suspicion of first-degree murder. From the moment of his arrest, Joseph White maintained his innocence and said he had no knowledge of Helen Wilson's death, and he asked for a lawyer. Joanne Taylor at first also said she knew nothing of the murder, but after some very helpful coaching... By the authorities, mm -hmm. memories of the crime started to come back to her. Well, coaching by Bert, right? Yeah, who is an authority. Well, I mean, like you're saying authorities. It was just the one dude, right? Was it? Are you kidding me? Find out more Did on this, this episode. Have a friend? Of Let's no! go to court. Oh. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> when we left off last week. Tom Winslow had just been arrested on suspicion of first-degree murder after being picked out of a photo lineup by Joanne Taylor. Mm -hmm. Winslow had also been named by the confidential informant early on and when questioned had claimed to be present in Helen Wilson's apartment the night of her murder, but said that he had left when White and Taylor had forced Helen Wilson into the bedroom and she'd begun screaming. But remember... Yes, she didn't die in the bedroom. This all took place in the living mm -hmm. room. Now under arrest... Winslow had asked to speak to Searcy, and this time, he told him he'd been lying before. He'd simply told him what he wanted to hear at mm -hmm. that initial interview. He'd never been inside Helen's apartment. This infuriated Searcy, because it was Winslow's statement that had secured the arrest warrants for White and Taylor. Now, he wasn't sure what to believe. And that's when Searcy got the call that there were some other people that he needed to talk to. 
people who would confirm what he had already believed, that he was on the right track all along. Oh, God. Enter the Sheldons. Okay, to be totally fair, I don't know for sure what took Searcy to the Sheldon's house on March 24th, 1989, nine days after he had taken Taylor and White into custody. He could have gotten a call that they had a tip. Or a much more believable version of events, in my opinion, is that he knew he could get the Sheldons to corroborate the version of the story that he had come to believe took place in Helen Wilson's apartment that night. Because I believe by this time he was truly spinning out of control, grasping at anything and anyone after Winslow retracted the statement that had been so instrumental in securing the arrest warrants. Yeah. Either way, the Sheldons were unbelievably helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Deborah Sheldon happened to be Helen Wilson's great niece. And she she grew up in foster care, so she didn't meet Helen until she was in her 20s. But she told Searcy that Joanne Taylor had confessed to the murder. In a letter she once read, but, you know, no longer had. Well, that's too bad. (laughs) You know, I often throw out murder confessions myself. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm probably not going to need this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Then... Searcy went and talked to Deb's husband, Cliff Sheldon, who was sitting in jail on unrelated assault charges. Does that sound familiar? Tom Winslow was also sitting in jail on unrelated assault charges when Searcy interviewed him. In fact, Cliff Sheldon was Tom Winslow's co-defendant in that unrelated assault case. Oh, no. Yes. (laughs) And wouldn't you know it? He had a whole lot of information about Helen Wilson's murder. Oh, my. He was like, oh, yeah. Taylor, White, Winslow, they were all there that night. But that's not all. My wife, Deb, was there. What? What? And so was James Dean, this young construction (laughs) worker who worked often in the area. So Bert Searcy's like, yeah, great. Getting some really good information Wait, here out of the how, Sheldons. How many people is this? Oh, that's um, we're up to five people now that have been. Okay, at what point do you just say, <laughs> how big is this apartment? Exactly. There's one man semen there. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's insane. So now we're at five people. Okay. okay, great. So Bert Searcy went back to Deb Sheldon, and he was like, uh, you know, your husband says you were involved in Helen Wilson's murder. And according to him, she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I was. I was totally there with Winslow, White and Taylor that night. I remember hearing Helen scream and I remember that my head was bleeding. I I must have gotten hurt somehow. What? (laughs) And Searcy's like, excellent. Handcuffs on, please. You're under arrest. And he took Deb Sheldon to jail. What? Yes. So she was, she said she was there. Yeah, that's what he says. Oh, oh, come on. <laughs> now it was time to track down that fifth suspect, James Dean. Everybody following along so far? We've got White, Taylor, Winslow, Sheldon, all currently in custody on suspicion of first degree murder. Now Searcy's out tracking down the next guy implicated in the case. It was April 15th, 1989, by the time they tracked down James Dean. He was headed to a bar in Lincoln, Nebraska, to celebrate his birthday. And when he got out of the car to go in, police swarmed him and placed him under arrest for murder. 
He told the police he knew nothing of the murder, though he did know some of the other suspects. He even agreed to take a polygraph. And when he learned that he failed it, he began to question his own memory. Oh, no. Wait, are all of these people kind of like on drugs or kind of messed up? Okay. Okay. That makes sense then. So by May of 1989, we've got five suspects in custody. And only one, Joseph White, was flat out denying any involvement in the case. The others seemed somehow unsure of their memories, though they had all denied involvement at some point. How could that be possible? If you were present for a murder, you'd remember it. If you weren't, you wouldn't, right? I mean, unless you have someone who is manipulating you and you don't trust your own memory. I mean, if you're drugged up or I don't know. This is where the power of suggestion really started to play a role in Mm. this case. When James Dean began to question himself after he learned that he failed his polygraph, the county attorney, the sheriff, and Dean's public defender all worked together and asked Beatrice psychologist Dr. Wayne Price to evaluate him. In his report after the evaluation, Dr. Price wrote that Dean repeatedly denied any involvement in the Wilson murder. But, Price wrote, he began to realize that the polygraph was revealing, at least on the unconscious level, his awareness that he was present in the apartment. But he couldn't reconcile that with the conscious belief that he was not there. Yeah, I mean, this this is so sad and terrible. Yeah, it is. Price concluded that Dean likely witnessed Wilson's death, but repressed the memory. He recommended therapy, and Dean agreed to therapy, but wanted to talk to someone else. He didn't feel Price had his best interests in mind, because mm-hmm. he was, drumroll please. What? A part-time deputy for the sheriff's oh. office. No! Right? No! No! Yeah. This... This is horrible. It's horrible. And, of course, this wasn't Price's first involvement in the case. Dr. Price had worked with the Beatrice police immediately after Helen Wilson's murder to help put together a profile of the suspect. He told them the killer likely acted alone and had great... Wait, no, uh, no, I'm sorry. There's five. (laughs) This is after she was first murdered. This is the profile he's putting together. Oh, weird. Okay, well, he got it wrong Uh because there's clearly like 17 people involved. (laughs) He told them the killer had likely acted alone and had great anger toward older women. And then he would go on to have contact with all but one of the suspects in the case as it progressed. He had traveled south with detectives when they went to arrest White and Taylor. He'd actually sat in on White's initial interrogation, though he never actually spoke to him. On tape, anyway. Mm -hmm. And he'd actually been Joanne Taylor's psychologist through the public health system before she was a suspect in the case. Wait, say that again? Sorry. Dr. Price was Joanne Taylor's psychologist through the public health system in Beatrice before she was ever a suspect in the case. 
he was actually the first person she saw when she got back to Beatrice after her arrest. Dr. Price also met with Deb Sheldon at the request of her public defender to evaluate her for competency. I'm surprised these public defenders are I sending... Know, like blowing my, it blows my mind. That, that just shows that these public defenders do not have their clients' well-being in mind all the time. I mean, not these ones, no. Yeah. Uh, I also wonder, like, when you're in a town this small, is it hard to find? I don't know. But even then, I feel like you've got to... There's not a psychologist who's not also a sheriff's deputy? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> or, like, surely there's the next town right, over. That's- exactly. That's yeah, they're not terrible. that far from Lincoln. Okay, then go to yeah. freaking Lincoln. That's right. That one dude was going to Lincoln yeah, to go drink. Yeah, for his birthday. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So he'd met with De- Deb Sheldon at the request of her public defender to evaluate her for competency. Sheldon had actually already pled guilty at this point, but said she was having trouble remembering the details of that night. Well, yeah, because she wasn't there. She said she needed help remembering the details so she could help make things right by testifying against the others. Oh, God. Dr. Price also saw Tom Winslow at some point, but later he couldn't remember if it was as a regular patient prior to his arrest or if it was after he was already a suspect in the case. And he was also about to meet with our next suspect, who we haven't yet met. The only person in this case he never met with independently was Joseph White, who also happened to be the only one who was consistently claiming his innocence. Mm. Yeah, that is disturbing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Time to meet our last suspect. Oh, my God. So at this point, we've got five suspects, but there's one big problem. Uh, none of them did it? None of them are type B. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too bad. So they're like, all right, who else you got? Who else you got? You're, be- you're bound to find someone eventually, And that's right? when the name Kathy Gonzalez came up. Kathy Gonzalez was living in Denver of, in May of 1989 when detectives came to speak with her. But she had lived above Helen Wilson at the time of the murder. Kathy's name had surfaced as a suspect during an interrogation of Deb Sheldon. Kathy maintained that she knew nothing about the murder, but agreed to come back to Nebraska to answer their questions and clear her name. In Nebraska, she continually denied any involvement. But began to question herself when detectives told her that multiple people were claiming her involvement. Oh, a lie. Oh, that was just a flat lie. It was just a flat lie. Her name had only come up once, and it was from Deb, Deb Sheldon. Oh, my gosh. She So Kathy Gonzalez was like, I legitimately have no involvement. I have no memory of this. She has to be hypnotized to free some long-suppressed memories, but the court discouraged it. Anything divulged during a hypnotism would likely be deemed inadmissible in court. Yeah. So she turned to Dr. Price. This is so sad to me because these people like they're like uh, if I if, if I, I was involved if I did this I yeah yeah then I am okay being punished if Absolutely. I did it then punish me yes. that is so 
Yeah. That is so rare, I feel oh, like. Yeah. And here they all Absolutely. are trying to do the right thing. Yes. Yeah. So several of them had drug issues. Yeah. Um, several of them were of uh, less than average intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was. Yeah, all of that makes sense to me yep. as to why you might think, well, gosh, I can't trust my own judgment. All these yeah. other people yep, are who saying, seem to be level-headed and yep. intelligent are telling me this one thing. Maybe yeah. I did it. So Kathy told Price that she didn't understand why she would have blocked out um, this memory. No. She said she'd had a lot of bad things happen to her in her life, and she could remember them all. Mm-hmm. This had to be really, really bad if she couldn't remember it at all. And Price told her, it is bad. I've been involved in a lot of investigations, and this one was one of the worst. Hmm. And Kathy told him, I don't think I was there, but they seem to have evidence against me, or they wouldn't have arrested me. Mm -hmm. And Price told her, well, enough evidence to convince the judge. What? Yeah. So he's like, well, yeah, they probably do have enough evidence to convince a judge. Oh. And then there were six, six suspects in the murder of Helen Wilson. They would come to be known as the Beatrice Six. Kathy, and again, her apartment wasn't messed up or anything, no, right? No, it was okay, not. There six was, people are in there. There was and, one footstool turned over, green in color, covered in vinyl. Yes. yes! <laughs> no, that's that just doesn't. Ugh. Yeah. Kathy Gonzalez would later say they just found a bunch of suckers. They weren't getting anywhere, so they found a bunch of disposable people, and that was us. Ouch. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. She she She's got it. Totally right. Yep. As 1989 moved forward, Joseph White sat in jail wondering how his life had come to this point. He was still maintaining his inner innocence. And his trial date had been set for October 30th, 1989. He could maintain his innocence until he was blue in the face, and he would, but the others were starting to stack up against him. Deb Sheldon, someone Joseph White had never even met, Mm. had already pled guilty to aiding and abetting second-degree murder. She told authorities that she saw White beat and rape her great-aunt Helen. And she was ready to testify against him. Next came James Dean. He started talking. He told investigators that he now remembered being with a group of people who broke into the apartment and attacked Helen Wilson. When asked by the county attorney, who often sat in on the interrogations, why he suddenly remembered this when he denied involvement previously, he said it came to him in a dream. Oh, Well, I feel I remembered it in my sleep, Dean said. I obviously had some kind of subconscious block or something. I don't know what it is for sure. I couldn't remember, and I thought I was telling the truth. Is this not just like... This is heartbreaking. It's terrible. Yep. And where were these other people's consciences? Right. They knew what was going on. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty quickly after that, Dean went from a confused man, unsure of his memories, 
to a full-on chatterbox. He gave authorities a series of five more statements over the course of two months, all of them different. And then Searcy played Dean the crime scene video. Upon seeing Helen Wilson's lifeless body, he buried his head in his attorney's coat and sobbed. Then he said he was ready to plead guilty to aiding and abetting second-degree murder. In doing so, he agreed to give total cooperation to the state of Deba- to the state of Nebraska. <laughs> Nebraska. Nebraska. The <laughs> <laughs> I love that Lady Gaga song. <laughs> In doing so, he agreed to give total cooperation to the state of Nebraska regarding the homicide of Helen Wilson. The plea bargains for Dean and Sheldon reduced the possible punishment from death. They were told they were facing the death penalty. Oh, my gosh. To a maximum of 10 years in prison. Well, who wouldn't take that deal? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you knew nothing. Yeah. You're not going to risk. No. Dying. Yeah. During depositions, both Dean and Sheldon said much of what they recalled from the murder about the murder came from dreams. Dean estimated 90% of his memories were revealed to him as he slept. And Price had encouraged it. What does that mean? He was like, think about what comes to you when you're sleeping. Those are your repressed memories. He told this to both of them. I believe he told it to all of the people involved in the case, but these are the two that recovered the most memories while they slept. Oh, well, great. Then I've got a lot of stuff to confess to. Right? That's how that works. Yeah. And the stories they told were devastating for White. They said a group of six, White, Taylor, Sheldon, Dean, Tom, Winslow, and Kathy Gonzalez, had broken into the apartment with a plan to rob the woman. White and Winslow took turns raping Wilson. Taylor helped hold her down and put a pillow over her face. But it wasn't a pillow. It was an afghan, right? That's correct. Okay. Guess he needs to keep dreaming. Right? Is there any part of this that you remember from actually being there? White's attorney asked Dean during a pretrial deposition. Oh, well, when you dream about something you did, you were actually there. No, dude. Yeah. What? Yeah. That is the direction that he was given from Dr. Price. That is, that's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. When Dean was asked to give a physical description of Joseph White, the man he claimed to have seen rape and murder, Helen Wilson, he couldn't do it. I wouldn't know if I wouldn't know if I seen him on the street, Dean said during a deposition. He could not describe him, yet he was going to testify in court that mm-hmm. he watched him rape and murder someone. Yeah, no. No. Joanne Taylor was the next to plead guilty. The county attorney told her that he was going to seek the death penalty against her. Or she could plead guilty to second-degree murder, testify for the state, and stay off death row. She took the deal. (sighs) Joseph White was offered the same deal, plead guilty to second-degree murder, and be sentenced to 25 years to life. He refused. He was innocent, he said. 
It was September of 1989 by this point. Joseph White's trial was a month away, and yet another co-defendant was about to turn witness for the prosecution. Kathy Gonzalez pled no guilty to eight... <laughs> no guilty. No woman, no cry. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy Gonzalez pled no contest (laughs) to aiding and abetting second-degree murder. The state now had four potential witnesses, all liars, if you ask Joseph White. And all he could do now was hope a jury would agree. Oh, shit. On October 30th, 1989, 26-year-old Joseph White walked into a packed courtroom to stand trial for the murder of Helen Wilson. County attorney Richard Smith thought he had a solid case. He had confessions and guilty pleas from three of the people charged in the case and a no-contest plea from a fourth. Three of them were ready to testify against White. What he didn't have was a single piece of physical evidence to tie any of them Mm -hmm. to the scene. In opening statements, White's attorney asked the jury to consider the credibility of Joanne Taylor, James Dean, and Deborah Sheldon. He noted that Taylor said in her statements that she was so high that she saw paint bleeding down the walls of Helen Wilson's apartment. He also pointed out to the jury that she had given several different versions of events over her many statements. As for James Dean and Deborah Sheldon, their memories had been recovered from dreams. How reliable could that be? The prosecutor countered the claims against the witnesses by offering, if the state could bring you in a priest or a rabbi or a nun or a minister that was there and put them on the stand for you, we would. But these are the people that were there. Okay, that... mm, No, that doesn't work. Right. That doesn't... That ignores the stuff about two of these people saying it was all a dream. Right. Yeah. And you can't just ignore that. Yep. The prosecutor also admitted that the jury would find inconsistencies between the witnesses' statements. But he said that all three would say White was there and that he'd raped and murdered Helen Wilson. Well, that's that's a powerful thing to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It all started in a bathroom, Deb Sheldon testified. On the night her great-aunt was killed, Taylor and Dean met to talk in a bathroom of a friend's apartment. Then the three of them went riding around with Tom Winslow and Joseph White, who they knew as Lobo. They ended up at Helen Wilson's apartment. Her great aunt recognized Sheldon and said hello. Then Taylor and White started shoving the woman around, elbowing Sheldon when she tried to stop them, knocking her into a wall so hard that her head was bleeding and she passed out. When Sheldon came to, She said her great-aunt was on the living room floor, her hands bound behind her back. Taylor knelt near the woman's head and held a pillow over her face. Winslow held her feet, and Lobo straddled her. I heard Mrs. Wilson screaming. She was trying to get up. She was struggling with her head back and forth, trying to get released out of Tom's hands. When Lobo was finished raping the 68-year-old widow, 
Winslow rolled her over and took his turn, Sheldon testified. Helen Wilson didn't move anymore after that. On cross, Joseph White's attorney came out swinging. Sheldon acknowledged that she'd met White only once, on the night of the murder. And she admitted she'd said in August that she didn't know what he looked like. Would you agree with me that you've changed your testimony a number of times, the attorney asked. Yes, she said. What prompted you to change your testimony? Was it a person? Was it dreams? What was it? Nothing, she said. Nobody told me anything. I just did it. Mm. And that's when White's attorney zeroed in on the role of Dr. Price. And Dr. Price helped you with your memory regarding those dreams, didn't he? Yes, Sheldon replied. Now, do you remember telling me in the deposition that everything you recalled about this murder you remembered in your dreams? And she said, I remember it by seeing it. I know exactly. And he said, can you separate for me, Mrs. Sheldon, the facts that you recall from your dreams from the facts that you remember from this case? Or are they identical? They're identical, she said. This is a good attorney. Okay. Next on the stand was James Dean. Dean testified he saw White, Taylor, Winslow, and Sheldon in apartment four. I just froze. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't watching. I wasn't paying attention to what was going on. Yet somehow he gave a vivid description of the rapes. And he said Taylor did more than cover Wilson's face. She was holding the hands and licking the upper body of Mrs. Wilson, which... What? Remember... Helen Wilson's hands were bound. Uh-huh. So oh. there's no way she was holding her hands. He also remembered that Joanne Taylor made coffee. And he remembered that Kathy Gonzalez was head was bleeding and she was holding a brown washcloth over her face. Okay, this this prosecutor had said details were different. These are big big details. details. Big details. And it's real. This is a really important piece of testimony uh-huh. about Kathy Gonzalez bleeding in the apartment. Yeah. Because she's the only member of the six with type B blood, <gasps> and type B blood was found in the apartment. Of course. And nobody else yeah. says that anybody with type B was bleeding in there. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody else is telling this same story. Yeah. The defense bored in on the fact that Dean had given multiple statements, each different from the last. They pointed out the inconsistencies in his testimony from what they knew to be fact at the crime scene, and they focused on an earlier conversation they had with Dean about Joseph White. Do you recall at a deposition that you were asked if you could identify him, the defense asked? Yeah. I wouldn't know if I've seen him. I can't say that right. I wouldn't know because he says it so weird. Okay. I wouldn't know him if I seen him. <laughs> That's what he says. That's Southern. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't know him if I seen him. Yeah. 
<laughs> Joanne Taylor testified next. She testified that she held a pillow on Helen Wilson's face so that she wouldn't see who was raping her. She'd done it to protect her. Boy, that's great. Yeah. Her testimony also tied White to a piece of physical evidence. Lobo, she said, did a trick that ended with him tearing a $5 bill. Exhibit number 19 in his trial for first-degree murder was part of a $5 bill found on the floor of Helen Wilson's apartment, apartment number four. The defense asked Taylor about the vastly different accounts she'd given of Helen Wilson's death and how she had come to a version that more closely matched the crime scene. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me that at no time police officers fed you information to you to testify to what you have testified today? The defense asked. I wouldn't say they fed it to me. No, sir. Then... I take it that the information they gave you was pretty influential in helping you remember, the defense countered. Yeah, it helped me sort things out a lot. Oh, I bet it did. Had they not helped you with the information, do you think you'd be able to remember anything? No, Taylor answered. Wow. Yeah. That says it all. Uh-huh. Joseph White took the stand in his own defense and denied any role in the crime. He said he'd never done a trick with a $5 bill, and he'd never even met Deb Sheldon. And can we just... How common is it in a rape and murder scene for, for someone, someone to do, do some do, trick? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then... The prosecution did something the defense hadn't thought to prepare their client for. They held up a portrait of Helen Wilson dressed in her Sunday best and said, Can you tell me what this is, if you know? And White replied flatly, It's a picture of an old woman. Mm -hmm. <sighs> the defense winced. It was his deeply honest answer but it had just given off the impression that he was a cold-blooded, oh, cold-hearted killer. Oh, shit. Yes. It, it I, was likely that he didn't have any idea that that was a picture of Helen Wilson. Well, yeah, just an old it woman. It was just a picture of an old woman. But it Oof. made a huge Oof. impression. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. Though the jury was instructed by the judge to consider the motives of those who had testified against Joseph White, so he was said, keep in mind that these people may have gained something from testifying in yeah. this trial. Yeah. If you think that there are questions about their testimony or that they were motivated by something other than the truth, do not convict on their testimony. Mm-hmm. Despite that, the jury deliberated for only four hours before finding Joseph White guilty of first-degree murder on November 9th, 1989. Oh. He was sentenced to life in prison. Following White's trial, Winslow pled no contest and was sentenced to 50 years for the rape and murder of Helen Ooh. Wilson. Joanne Taylor was sentenced to 10 to 40 years 
while Gonzalez, Dean, and Sheldon were all sentenced to 10 years. Even after his conviction, Joseph White maintained his innocence. He started to hear about DNA testing in prison and knew it would be the thing to prove his innocence. Yes. He took jobs at the prison to save up money for an attorney. It took him seven years. Well, yeah, because they don't make anything. They don't even make minimum wage, right? No, no, no. They make like 30 cents an hour. And that attorney took his case nowhere. But White didn't give up hope. In 2001, the Nebraska DNA Testing Act took effect. It allowed people convicted of felonies to file motions for DNA tests if the technology was unavailable at the time of their convictions. White wrote to a law firm in Norfolk that he'd heard was good at post-conviction appeals. Wait, Norfolk? Yeah, what did I say? Well, I think, oh my God, am I about to correct you? Okay, there's Norfolk, Virginia. The L is silent. But maybe in Norfolk, Nebraska, it's... I bet it's Norfolk, Nebraska. I don't know. Okay. People, tell us. And if Brandy has <laughs> finally just saying, mispronounced over, something, Over please. in Missouri, they pronounce the L in everything. They call yeah. it Versailles, Missouri. Well, we're a classy <laughs> state. <laughs> so he wrote them in 2001, that law firm. But he heard nothing back. Then... In 2005, oh my gosh. the senior partner from that firm, Doug Stratton, was at the prison meeting with another client, and he decided that he would tell Joseph White face-to-face that he wouldn't be taking the case. Four years later! Boy, not a moment too <laughs> soon, right? Can right? you imagine? Yeah, didn't hear anything back. And then four years later, a senior partner at that firm shows up and is like, hey, hey I just want to let you know we're not going to take your case. And I'm sure he was like, mm, I'd kind of put that together. Yeah. Thank you. But something happened in that meeting and Stratton changed his mind. Oh, wow. He started looking into the case, interviewing co-defendants, and he saw what a shit show it was. He urged Winslow to get representation and fight for DNA testing at that time, too. And in October of 2005, both men filed motions to have the crime scene evidence tested. On August 28, 2006, a district judge denied both motions. Essentially, the judge said a favorable result for White or Winslow would only suggest one or the other didn't rape Wilson. The men could still have participated in the crime in other ways. So they appealed that decision to the Nebraska Supreme Court. And the high court ruled in their favor on November 2nd, 2007. Oh, Kristen's birthday. (laughs) More than 22 years after Helen Wilson was murdered. The justices decided DNA testing might exclude both White and Winslow as sources of the semen. Such a result would have caused jurors at White's trial to seriously doubt the testimony of Taylor, Dean, and Sheldon. Yes. Run the DNA tests, they said. In 2008, so this is just like slogging along. 
Like This is so sad. I mean, yeah. once the judicial system has their claws oh, in yeah. you, you're done. So in 2008, the Human DNA Identification Laboratory at the University of Nebraska Medical Center tested blood and semen samples recovered from the apartment. Two cuttings from Helen Wilson's nightgown were tested. Two slides and a cutting from the carpet were tested. A slide of fluid taken from inside Helen Wilson was tested. And they also tested blood from White, Winslow, and Wilson. Lab analysts use a method that required only tiny samples to extract DNA. The age of the sample mattered little, but it needed to be free of cross-contamination. In other words, if the police who collected the evidence contaminated it with their own cells, the tests wouldn't work. Oh, no. What are you about to tell me? So they send these tests off, and the tests worked. (gasps) They also excluded white and winslow of course additionally none of the crime scene dna matched taylor dean sheldon or gonzalez oh my gosh it belonged solely to helen wilson and an unidentified male yep joseph white was released from prison on october 15 2008 after serving more than 18 years in prison. God, that's terrible. Tom Winslow was released two days later. Joanne Taylor, the only other co-defendant still in prison, was released in November. On November 10, 2008, Joseph White was fully exonerated. His five co-defendants could not be exonerated in the same way as they had pled guilty or no contest. Mm. But on January 26, 2009, They were pardoned by the state. Wow. They are the first six people in Nebraska history to be exonerated by DNA evidence. Each member of the Beatrice Six was paid $500,000 in compensation by the state of Nebraska. That's it? Mm Mm-hmm. Joseph White died in a workplace accident in 2011 after receiving only $25,000 of his compensation, oh. the rest went to his estate. Isn't that devastating? Yes. His life was stolen from him. It was. He shouldn't have had to be working right. after that. He right. should have been set for mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Ugh. A federal civil lawsuit was filed on behalf of the Beatrice Six against Gage County, And the case was dismissed twice. What on earth for? But the dismissal was reversed twice. Finally, in 2016, the suit went to trial and a jury awarded $7.3 million Mm -hmm. to Joanne Taylor, Tom Winslow, and the estate of Joseph White. It also awarded $2 million to Jane to James Dean and Kathy Gonzalez, as well as $1.8 million to Deb Sheldon. The county has appealed the judgment and is considered and is considering filing bankruptcy to keep from paying. Wow. Yep. Oh my God. That that was horrible. I'm not done yet. You're not done? Okay. <laughs> Well, yeah, what happened to Bruce? What's his face? So who killed Helen Wilson? 
Okay, I have a theory. What's your theory? You know that original guy who looked so good and who uh-huh. seemed like he had to have been a secretor. They had to have like messed that up somehow. It had to have been him. Bruce Smith killed, killed <gasps> Helen Wilson. You Seriously? You are correct. Oh my God. Okay, what happened? A test of DNA showed that Bruce Smith was an exact match for the DNA left of the scene. Oh my God. So those initial tests that were done? Yeah. They were done by Joyce Gilchrist, a forensic chemist, and she was the one who ruled him out as a suspect in the early days of the investigation. Mm -hmm. Since then, she has been widely discredited and accused of falsifying evidence. What? She continued to work for the Oklahoma lab until her dismissal in 2001 and played a role in countless other erroneous blood, semen, and DNA results. Oh, my God. Yep. But they she's not had, in prison right now, right? No. She's, okay. actually, she's actually dead, but no, she never... These people should be in faced prison. any charges or anything from That's it. That's insane. They had the right guy from day 10. That, oh, does that not blow your fucking mind? I mean, really, what blows my mind is everything that came afterward. Mm -hmm. Because someone messing up at a lab or even like, I don't know. I don't know why she would purposely. I don't know that it was purposefully done. But maybe I think she was probably just really fucking terrible at her yeah, job. Yeah, it sounds like I'm she guessing. didn't know her ass from yeah. her elbow and then messed that up. I'm surprised they didn't push more, considering all the evidence against that guy. Mm-hmm. But then to go after these innocent people, mm-hmm. and they weren't even people who looked good for this. Mm-mm. You know, I mean, it just didn't. Let make me any tell sense. you how much it didn't make sense. Okay, so. After the exonerations, a task force started looking back over the case to see how it could have gone so wrong. Well, no kidding. They need to learn some lessons. And it was glaringly obvious that Bert Searcy had developed tunnel vision based on a false theory from the very beginning. He believed that Joseph White was the prime suspect in that unsolved string of attacks on elderly women in 1983. Do you remember me talking about that in the last episode? That had formed the whole basis of his investigation and theory about the Wilson murder case. But Joseph couldn't possibly have been a suspect in those cases. He was in the Army at the time, stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. (sighs) The task force then put together a laundry list of inaccuracies from Searcy's theory. Wilson's apartment exhibited every hallmark of a sex crime, not a robbery. Well, the original, they didn't take anything. Yes, the original police investigators also had thought it was a sexually motivated killing. At White's trial, two witnesses testified that the apartment had been searched for cash, but investigators found no sign of ransacking. Yeah. More to the point, $1,300 in cash was left in Wilson's purse. Yeah, what are they, the worst robbers sight. ever? Yeah. yeah. And I'm sorry, there's six of them, and yeah. one of them doesn't, doesn't look in the t- purse? Yeah, yeah, no. I guess they were too busy doing that fun trick with the $5 Yeah, with the $5 bill. bill. In addition, investigators on the task force had never known rape to be a spectator crime. 
Right. None could think of a sexual assault in which the rapist took women to watch. Yeah, that is. I didn't even think about yes. it that way. That is weird. Yes. The DNA results decimated the eyewitness testimony of Joanne Taylor, Deborah Sheldon, and James Dean. Testimony that was the heart of the prosecution's case. Clearly, White and Winslow did not rape the victim. And if those witnesses were telling the truth, where was the blood Sheldon left on the bedroom wall from the head wound? Yeah. That blood had been Bruce Smith's. Of course. Where was the type B blood from Kathy Gonzalez? Blood she had spilled after, you know, being kicked in the nose or whatever when she was holding that washcloth. Again, it was Bruce Smith's blood. Mm Mm-hmm. If anyone else was involved in this crime, they miraculously left no biological evidence behind. Looking further into this, the task force members interviewed the witnesses. Taylor and Dean said that they had lied in 1989 to cut deals with the state. Yeah. Both gave polygraphs to the task force that indicated that they were telling the truth this time. Only Sheldon stood bes- stood behind her trial testimony. Oh. She claimed it was the truth. That but poor woman. None of the six knew Bruce Smith at all. There was no connection of them to the from any of these mm-hmm. six to the actual killer. So, the task force dug deeper. If Taylor, Dean, and Sheldon lied, how did they essentially tell the same lie? Because it was fed to them. And they found their answer in the interrogation tapes. Mm -hmm. The six surviving tapes revealed multiple examples of leading questions posed by Searcy and Police Sergeant Sam Stevens. The interrogations also mentioned details from the crime scene never released to the public, details which may have helped the witnesses seem more credible. A couple of times, the suspects changed their stories or produced more accurate details after breaks in the tape. The task force then found something that was both the smallest detail and the biggest red flag. Lisa Brown... Searcy's confidential informant. Remember her? Yes. She's at the very beginning of this story. She, She's the one who like saw 1018, mm-hmm. memorized jackets, memorized the make and model of the car. Yep. Mm-hmm. So in her original statement, she said that Joanne Taylor came up to her at 7.30 a.m. on February 6th, 1985, and they stood outside the school, and they watched as the police cars were over at mm-hmm. Helen Wilson's apartment, and she said that Taylor said, I just killed a woman in there, and I can tell you exactly how she's laying, and I can prove it because there's a footstool knocked mm-hmm. over. It is vinyl-covered and green in color. Mm-hmm. There's a significant problem with that story. And it was a discrepancy that was originally overlooked by the investigators, by the prosecution, and by defense attorneys. Oh my God, what? The timing is wrong. Wilson's brother-in-law didn't dial 911 until (gasps) 9.29 a.m. Whoa! Yeah. Okay, that's terrible! Yeah! 
police cars. Were those defense attorneys just asleep? I don't know. That's crazy. Yeah. Police cars wouldn't have arrived at Helen Wilson's apartment that day until Lisa Brown was well into her school day. Yeah. To this day, Bert Searcy believes that his investigation was not flawed. He believes that two crimes took place in Helen Wilson's apartment that night. First, he believes that those six people broke in and killed Helen Wilson. Then, no. In a separate No, this crime, guy is not this stupid. Bruce Smith entered Helen Wilson's apartment sometime later, found raped her a dead, dead body, body, and raped it, leaving behind the physical evidence. I'll go to my deathbed on that, he said. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess you have to believe that, right? Mm-hmm. Because either you believe that mm-hmm. or you believe I have done something unspeakably horrible mm-hmm. because I was so I mean I don't even like calling it tunnel vision because yeah. at a certain point it's when you're way feeding, beyond that. Yeah, yeah. When you're feeding people information, yeah. no. Yeah. It's not tunnel vision anymore. You're you're doing something really yeah. bad. Oh. Okay, one last bit oh about God, the power of suggestion. Okay. To this day, because of what Dr. Price told her, Deb Sheldon believes that she was involved in the murder of Helen Wilson. That is so sad. And Joanne Taylor has flashbacks where she can feel herself holding a pillow over Helen Wilson's face. It never happened. She has to like speak this like mantra to herself to get her out of the flashback. She can physically feel it in her hands. Yeah. That is the power of suggestion. Oh my God. Is that not the craziest case you've ever heard? It is so terrible. So upsetting. So sad. But so well told and oh God, it's just terrifying. It is so scary. Yeah. That some dum dum who's bored being a hog farmer decides, I'm gonna solve this. Yep. And then everyone buys it. Yep. Yeah. I just feel like there's a presumption of guilt. I mean, when when a jury hears, yeah, it came to me in a dream and just... Uh, so this eight-part series of yeah. articles, yeah. the title of the series is Presumed Guilty. <laughs> was so good worth two parts right i totally agree it was worth two parts (laughs) this needs to be a documentary it's nuts nobody has heard of this case it's so good yeah so good it's nuts and i feel like nobody has heard of it so so what's bruce doing now bruce is just hanging out bruce died of aids in 1992 wow well before they were able to confirm that he is the one Oh, I'm sorry. I meant the other Bruce. Bert. Bert. I'm so- <laughs> I was like, 
wow, didn't didn't see that coming. Okay. No, Bert, Bert. Searcy? Sorry. Okay. So I tried to find this. Yeah. The latest mention I can find of him is 2016. Uh-huh. And he was still in uniform. No. Yep. As a sheriff's deputy. That's deeply disturbing. I don't even know what to say to that. Yep. Oh. Mm. Mm-hmm. Did you like find him on Facebook or something? Had no, you- I found his LinkedIn, but his LinkedIn says that he still is currently. But I found an article yeah. where he was because he testified at the um, the civil uh-huh. uh, trial where he was like, "Don't worry, we got it." Yeah, yeah, that's where he testified that he believed that this was his investigation was not flawed. And that just, you know, two different crimes happened in that apartment that day. That is the dumbest That's the dumbest fucking theory. Yes. So, what, six people went in, murdered someone. Didn't leave behind a shred of evidence. Didn't take anything, didn't really mess anything up Mm -hmm. besides the footstool. They Mm -hmm. kicked that thing over. He also claims that this is the case because they made coffee. There was coffee made in the apartment, and there were several mugs out with coffee in it. <gasps> it's so, not true. It's not on the crime scene videotape anywhere. It's completely a false memory of the crime scene. Okay, and I'm sorry. Even if that were the case, yeah, that's not enough for me. Right. Oh, cups of coffee left out? Mm-hmm. I've got three upstairs. <laughs> Oh, that's insane. Yeah. So I had never heard of this case before. I follow the Innocence Project on um, on Instagram mm-hmm. and uh, had, they had mentioned it because they were involved in the exoneration of the Beatrice Six. Man, mm-hmm. that that was incredible. Yeah, that was so, so good. Yeah. Thank you for telling it. That Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Worth it. Suck it, whoever thought two parts wasn't, <laughs> wasn't good. Brandy, we don't have a big enough audience sorry, for you to be I'm telling sorry. people to suck it. I take it back. <laughs> Something exciting happened. What? We received a package Ooh. in the mail. So I have to admit something. Okay. So... We got something in the mail. Uh huh. It's from a listener. Excellent. Um, it's from Vani, uh-huh. who has oh yeah, who has listened to yeah. She's been listening for a long time. Yeah. She was one of our early Twitter followers when there were like twelve people yeah. following. Yeah. So she sent us something in the mail. I got so excited because she doesn't really know this, but I like. So she goes to all the video game conventions uh-huh. and stuff. And so, like, I'd heard her name from Norm for a long time. Oh, and yeah. so I kind of had that creepy thing of, like, I know who you are. You don't know who right. I am. But, like, so it's like, oh, yeah. yeah. So I had no self-control. I was going to wait till you got here, but it was just sitting on the kitchen counter. I opened it's it. Fine. I opened That's it. fine. Okay. <laughs> so she did the sweetest thing for us. First of all, she got us a gift card to BevMo, which was like, I didn't know what that was. Oh, that's cool. Yes. Yeah. It was so sweet. It's like, I guess if you want to get yourself some drinks, it, they can be delivered. That's awesome. Like like uh, Grubhub for drinks. Exactly. Yes. But in addition to that, 
She got us something pretty funny. She got us a magnifier. <gasps> so we can be Sherlock Holmes at our own <laughs> fancy wine party? Okay, you're ten times smarter than me because I was like, well, uh, well, that's nice. I don't know why. <laughs> but that's exactly right. She, she'd listened to that uh, yes. wine episode. She was like, okay, you know, I use these in the shop. You know, you, can, awesome. you can look at the label, make sure it's legit. Um, let's see. So she wrote in this really sweet letter. I won't read the whole thing, but she said, Kristen and Brandy, that episode of the fake booze got me thinking. I do carry a pocket magnifying glass for work, and you guys should too, for fake wine reasons. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Hope you two find a real tasty bottle and watch out for those fake labels. Ugh. Yeah. So so it was so sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was. It was really, really cool That's to get something. Really awesome. we, we appreciate it very thank you, much. Thank you, thank you, So you know how I'm doing this new thing where like I put yeah. notes to myself? Yeah. Okay, so I made I made the notes. My heart was full of joy today, and I just wrote, thank you to Vani. Also, joy of listeners, which I think just meant like I really like our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> That's quite the note. Joy of listeners. Joy Brandon. of listeners. Thanks. Thanks. No, but it's been like, I feel like we've had a lot of really nice, funny people reach out. Oh my it's gosh. Just, and like so the la- just like the last like three days, we've gotten like five really amazing thought out reviews that people took the time to write yes. for us. It just like, just warms our hearts when you guys take the time to do that. It's so yeah. awesome. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I mean, if you're one of those listeners that's sitting there and hasn't given us a rating or given us a review yet. Listen, freeloader. Yeah. <laughs> We're no. going to need you to get your ass over to iTunes, <laughs> give us five stars, leave us a review, and then find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Reddit. We're in all of those places. And then... Join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from FamousTrials.com, PBS, Wikipedia, TheLongRoadToJustice.org, and the book Boston Slave Riot and the Trial of Anthony Burns. And I got my info from an eight-part series of articles in the Lincoln Journal Star, as well as the Omaha World, the New Yorker, and the InnocenceProject.com. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. It's probably the innocenceproject.org. <laughs> Any errors like that are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. <laughs>